Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing Podcast. Buckle up and ride shotgun as we cover everything you need to know about the uplands. The habitat. The hunting. And of course, your favorite bird dogs. The winter of 2022 into 2023 arrived early has been very snowy, extremely windy, and devastatingly cold. And it continues. It looks to be a much longer and more severe winter for a large swath of the northern pheasant range than we've experienced in quite some time. On this episode of On the Wing Podcast, I'm going to check in with three of our biologists, one from North Dakota, one from Minnesota, and one from South Dakota, to get a report on their winter weather, their habitat conditions, and an assessment on how the birds are currently doing as we record this in early January. Joining me, all three of them are back to the podcast, the repeat punch card holders in our podcast on the wing. Uh, they're all three biologists, not meteorologists, but biologists, and they all live in the heart of pheasant country. They're diehard hunters, they're conservationists, and, and they hold degrees in biology, all three of them. Uh, from Bismarck, North Dakota, Rachel Bush is our private lands conservation programs manager. Tanner Bruce joins us from Marshall, Minnesota, and he's our newly minted, congratulations, Tanner, our newly minted Minnesota state coordinator, new title, and Matt Morlock from Huron, South Dakota. He's a state coordinator for both South Dakota and North Dakota, but for the purposes of this conversation, Rachel gets North Dakota. And Matt only gets to talk about South Dakota. So with, cha- with, championship, with championship football weekend coming this weekend, we better keep it separated. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you all three of you for, for joining Tanner. Congrats on the new title. Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, so my, my plan is to go around the horn, start with North Dakota into Minnesota and close out with South Dakota. I'll invite all three of you. Uh, if you want to weigh in um, on something, uh, please do so, and, and we'll have a fun conversation here. Well, as fun as we can possibly have, given the weather conditions, <laughs> as uh, as I look out my window and I still need to shovel the most recent <laughs> recent snow, and and it's piled up on my roof. And um, you know, before the season closed here in Minnesota, um, which was you know, a week ago now, I'll be frank, it was, it looked pretty dire. Um, I was out, well, dire for this uh, middle-aged guy trying to bust through <laughs> snow that was up to my kneecaps. Uh, my, my short hairs were, uh, we, we prefer to hunt in October, Dad. Uh, it, it was really tough going, and it, it was very, you know, devastating for, from what I looked at from a pheasant's perspective. So that's what I want to learn a little bit more. So let's start in North Dakota with Rachel. Um, I know looking at the weather forecast, what you've, what we receive in the Twin Cities, you get a day or a day and a half earlier in Bismarck. And I think you've got actually more snow than we do. What, what's it been like in Bismarck? It's it's snowy, but before we go into that, I just want to thank you for putting the first Dakota first. You know, if we're gonna keep this Dakota competition first, yeah, I'm glad North Dakota's first. Um, but yeah, it's I get snowy, the mic, and I get I, the mic last. <laughs> I I think what you know, I think you guys are getting snow over there now, or at least that's what I've been hearing. And luckily, we missed this storm. They were kind of calling for us to get additional snow. Um, you know, if, if the storm took a more northerly route, but it took a southerly route. So we really have, we haven't received any snowfall on this storm that you guys in Minnesota are receiving right now. It's been foggy. Um, we've had a lot of frost, but no snowfall, which I'm thankful for because mm. it started snowing. I mean, let's not count the blizzard that happened in April. 
but it started snowing. We had a multi-day blizzard starting on Veterans Day. You know, they were calling for like nine to 13 inches. And you think, you know, that time of year, maybe it'll melt off. You know, maybe some days we get lucky. Uh, it didn't melt off and we got like 20 some inches <laughs> instead of the nine to 13. So uh, for clarity, you said that let's not count the snow we got in April, which yeah. was <laughs> April of 22, which you bring up because that was massive and it was right before spring nesting season, yeah. which paid a price on because it was a super mild winter until that point right right we had a fairly open winter i mean we had some snow but it wasn't horrible um and then yeah the four-day blizzard happened over oh it might have been around easter um four-day blizzard dumped 30 some inches on bismarck mm -hmm. some states saw more than that uh, but yeah right at the start of nesting season some of those early hens might have initiated um, if they didn't, it definitely pushed back nesting. And we saw that, you know, come hunting season. I mean, there were birds that you just couldn't identify as roosters, you know, into October. And I shot a bird um, over, vet, you know, after that Veterans Day blizzard, I went out and tried, <laughs> tried my will and, and got a bird and it still had brown, brown feathers on its belly. So we had a late hatch. Mm. So that was April. But then, you know, we had summer for a short period mm -hmm. of time and then we started <laughs> snowing again um but yeah i think overall i was you know you, the the news is big on it and so i kind of try to listen but we're on record to be the snowiest winter you know we're at pace i think in bismarck we're at 51.3 inches um mm. you know and if we keep on this pace where we we get 20 inches every couple weeks um we're gonna you know hit some records we're already hitting records but record snowfall um, right so yeah we've and got a lot I, out there and i know you're a hardcore bird hunter with a relatively young pup so you were hunting um up till the close of the season in north dakota and what, what did you see out there on the landscape from a you know it was winter cover food getting blown in it was i mean i hunted you know after that first blizzard on veterans day i went out and hunted and it you know, there was some snow in the cattails. It wasn't too bad. The woody cover had some, um, but birds were still roosting in grass fields, you know, where there was mm. some tall, stiff stem grass. But after those, after the blizzards that followed, you know, any, any cover that was available in grass, you know, fields that had some nice, tall, stiff stem grass was gone. Um, a lot of our narrow, I guess I'd call woody cover plantings. And I say narrow because those aren't, I mean, as a biologist, that's not what I would recommend for winter cover, um, but birds still use them, but they're, they're drifted in and they've got drifts that are 10, 12, 15 feet high. You know, we'll see them in June still. We'll see snow strips. Mm. Um, and the cattail sloughs are filled in. Um, but I think a lot of what's happening is they're, they're filled in, but there's a lot of space underneath. You know, the snow is kind of um, domed up and there might be some open areas underneath and the birds are using those open areas but um yeah it's our winter cover is getting filled in it's it's going to be hard for the birds to continue to find areas if we get you know more snow and we don't see we've had a few days that have melted and settled some snow but nothing that's opened up bare ground really mm. you talk about narrow shelter belts and winter cover explain that a little bit more what what's narrow in a biologist's eyes and then what would be beneficial from a width perspective in a biologist's eyes narrow to me is anything that's less than 15 rows you know and usually yeah. those those 15 rows i you know whether they're long and linear in their 15 rows or they're they're wide blocks um on something that if you're going to plant woody cover for pheasants, you know, have a couple outside evergreen rows, they really, you know, they're going to block a majority of the wind, capture a lot of the snow, and that leaves the rest of your tree rows open or your shrub rows, I guess I should say, not trees, um, open in providing some cover. But I like to see at least 15 if you're going to call it a wildlife planting. Um, anything mm. less than that is, you know, one to two rows, three rows, you're really not getting wildlife benefit and you're probably creating more of a detriment um, to pheasants during nesting season than you are providing any sort of winter cover. Oh, why is that? What, what's the detriment during nesting season? 
So anytime you break up a block of grass, so you have a, a large block of undisturbed grass cover, that's going to be your quality nesting cover. Anytime mm -hmm. you break that up with trees or roads, that's creating fragmentation. And those corridors, you know, we as hunters, <laughs> I think we've all we've all can raise our hand and say, yeah, we've walked tree rows, we've kicked pheasants out of them. And, you know, you might assume that because you kicked a bird out of there, they're good. But we're predators just like other, you know, predators, whether it's fox, coyote, raccoon, skunk. They're going to use those narrow rows as travel corridors. And it makes their ability to search for and find nest a lot more efficient if they have less, you know, if they're traveling down that tree row and they're searching out from that tree row a certain distance into the nesting cover, they're going to be more efficient at finding pheasant nest than okay. if that makes sense. wasn't there. So, so as you think about the weather you've had, kind of the adult carryover into winter of the birds, give us an assessment of what you think, how are birds doing in North Dakota right now? My assumption is based on what you've talked about, things are in rough shape. The habitat conditions aren't, you know, aren't stellar. They aren't, they aren't what I, we would like to see. It's a, it's going to be a tough winter. That being said, the birds are tough birds. You know, they if they couldn't survive, you know, the northern Great Plains and winters in the northern Great Plains, we would have lost pheasants a long time ago. So they're tough birds. Um, they're finding what habitats out there, what cover is out there. Their flock, you know, you're seeing larger flocks of them. A lot of them, at least up here in North Dakota, you'll see them move into farmyards. Um, hmm. But I'm still seeing birds on days where, you know, the sun's shining, the wind's not blowing, they're moving out to that cover, they're going out into open fields, they're scratching, they're finding food. Um, and we're not really hearing, you know, we're not hearing a ton of reports of dead birds. So, a lot, you know, especially, I mean, the hunting season, our season closed on the first. Um, you know, if there was a lot of dead birds out there, you, we would have been hearing a lot of reports because hunters were probably going to be pushing cattails or they were going to be walking those tree rows and they would have found those dead birds. Um, and we, I mean, there's been some, but not a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, anytime we talk Dakotas, Minnesota, Montana, Iowa, you know, always talk cattails, how important <laughs> cattails are to pheasants in the Northern range. Um, it, 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 that, that can't be under, um, undersold, can it, Rachel? I mean, you, you gotta talk about cattails is, probably the number one source of thermal winter cover for pheasants in northern states, right? Right on. Yeah. I mean, you, you nailed that statement. I mean, they'll use other areas, but if we really need to, you know, if we're talking about winter cover, let's talk about cattails. Um, you know, here in North Dakota, though, you get over into like the southwestern part of the state and we don't have the wetlands like we do in the other parts of the state. So you don't have cattails. But what we have over there is river corridors, riparian areas. Um, and so those areas are really our strongholds in the Southwest mm. um, to provide winter cover and thermal cover. They're usually, you know, thicker vegetation. There's some shrubby component to them. And so those are the historical winter strongholds in the Southwest where we don't have cattails because we don't have the wetlands over there. So that leads to another cattail oriented question. I'll open this up to Tanner and Matt too, because I'm completely throwing you a curveball, Rachel. So I don't, you maybe know this, maybe you don't. Like you never see cattail seed available for sale to plant it anywhere on the landscape. You know, like it's it's not for sale. Like, is does that exist anywhere? And then kind of the other part to that is, I think about hunting cattails in Minnesota, and it's harder than hell to get through them. But then as you move west and move south, they become thinner and less dense. Like I think about Matt, Sand Lake Wildlife Refuge, a lot of cattail hunting, but they're not as compact of cattail. Is it a different species or is it because of the, the soil difference in some states that they don't grow as dense? So I'm asking two Really long-winded two-part question about cattails. <laughs> is any raise your hand if you can answer either one? Is there so Matt? Go ahead. I'll start with the density thing. A lot of that is the frequency of saturation. You know, water level cycling up and down, 
And the longer they've set the water column is sat down below the ground, your cattails mm. get older, mature like a grass stand. They get really thick and choked out um, until it floods. And when it floods again and comes back up, then they'll thin back out. But if they stay at a more constant flooded stage, they won't get as thick usually. Um, so it's mm. just like grass. Um, kind of over over the cycle of time, pre or post disturbance, they thicken up. Um, that's a lot of it. Um, you know, we mm. in this area will burn them sometimes to thin it out if it hasn't flooded in a while. Um, but there's also there's different there's three types of cattails. There's mm. a narrow leaf cattail, there's a wide leaf cattail, and a hybrid cattail, which is the combination of the two. Um, mm. They have different growth characteristics as well. Um, typically, what you find is the hybrids, um, and they're very competitive and they do get thick um, and nasty. <laughs> you don't see white and narrow very often anymore. It's it's hard to find. It's kind of like finding bulrush and phragmites and stuff. It it gets harder and harder, and it's because this hybrid cattail. It's just so competitive, which I think plays into your next question. I've never seen it for sale either because it's everywhere. <laughs> I, I, I Bob, I spread it after I walk through the cattail. Right. <laughs> as I'm emptying my, as I'm ripping your boots and your gloves and your glasses out, you're spraying it in the right. wind. Right. It's nature. What's that uh, Instagram TikTok? It's TikTok. Nature's... It's nature's hot dog, right? Yeah. Right, right. Nature's yeah. hot dog, nature's corn dog, where you bite into the cattail and it explodes. Um, we don't on, on the wing podcast recommend you try that at home. <laughs> but if you do, it's go ahead and tweet right. it to us. Yeah. <laughs> and I never knew, never knew Matt, you were the Cliff Clavin of cattails. But I'm glad I had you on for that. Yeah, yeah. It's you know actually way back when you know 20 plus years ago when I was doing my research, it was on wetlands, so. I'm a closet mm. wetland person. <laughs> nice. Um, all right. So uh, closing thoughts, Rachel, as, as you think about the winter in North Dakota, does the severity this year make you want to underscore anything particular from a biologist perspective who thinks it works for the habitat organization? I would say number one thing is we're in the thick of winter right now. So it's too late to do anything that can help right now. I mean, we have what winter covers out there. We have what habitat, but, you know, looking forward, I know a lot of pheasant hunters and a lot of people are concerned about the birds. My recommendation would be the best thing you could do is support and develop and deploy habitat. It's that's, that's always the answer, right? Habitat, habitat, habitat. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't always necessarily have to be winter habitat and thermal. I mean, we're kind of at an extreme winter this year. Not every winter's like this. Um, so my recommendation is invest in nesting habitat because yes, harsh winters come. We're in the Northern Great Plains. We're always going to have harsh winters. But if we have habitat on the ground come spring, those birds are resilient and they're going to re their populations are going to rebound, but they can't do that if the habitat for them to nest in is not there. So that would be my number one underscoring. So I, I'm getting to you, Tanner, but I got to keep asking Rachel a couple more questions. So, You're good. so you talked, uh, talked about, you know, the importance of nesting season. The key is hens coming into that nesting season in a good condition, right? I mean, that's what we really want to talk about is net hens, correct? Yeah, there. I mean, one rooster can do a lot of work, you know. But really, we... <laughs> <laughs> that, oh, I wish we were videotaping that because your face was classic. <laughs> but yeah, we. I mean, if we want to, you know, build the population, grow the population, you need right. hens, you know, to do that. Is do you know about um, competition between hens and roosters in wintertime? Like the mythology out there, maybe it's not mythology, but the, the, the line of thinking is that roosters outcompete hens for food in tough conditions. And put, so, so that's one of the reasons like some people are like, well, we need an end of the season hunt to get rid of some more roosters. So conditions are better for hens as we have a more severe winter. Is there any truth to that logic? I've heard that same thing. I guess, you know, if I put my biologist boots on, 
I don't know as I've read, you know, a peer reviewed journal article about that behavior, but I've definitely read it before that, you know, roosters will outcompete or they'll get aggressive and push hens away from food sources. Um, so it's a possibility. I can't, I don't know if I've ever witnessed it. Hmm. Go ahead, Matt. The situations where I've seen that it's in areas where there's not a lot of habitat available and you had a year where you had a good hatch and you have a lot of birds in that area without a lot of habitat and that becomes a limiting factor really quick. Um, so it's another case for we need habitat on the ground and putting habitat on the ground takes care of a lot of these problems because um, I, I have seen a few instances like I said and heard of a few others from kind of firsthand knowledge of areas where there wasn't hardly any habitat. You know, I'm thinking the southeast part of the state or Sorry, Tanner, mm -hmm. in Minnesota, where there wasn't a lot of come on now, where there wasn't a lot of habitat in that area, but they had a good hatch that year and had a lot of birds, where mm -hmm. it really was looking like the roosters are larger in size, they're more aggressive, and they mm -hmm. were taking that core thermal cover in the middle of the cattail sloughs, and pushing those hens towards the edges, mm -hmm. um, and it was really becoming a competition. But if you have a lot of habitat, you have good habitat that's in high quality, it's not going to be an issue. Um, it, you, there should yeah. be enough to go around um, unless you're blessed to have an overabundance of pheasants like crazy number of pheasants mm. like Minnesota <laughs> <laughs> like South Dakota was um, alright fi uh, final question for Rachel before I move on because it, you know, for folks that listened um, you know, recently you joined me on, on KFAN and you did a wonderful job explaining the the phrase um, from a habitat perspective putting the kitchen next to the bedroom and you, you explain that really well to the KFAN listeners so I'd like you to tee that up again and, and explain what that means and why it's important to somebody that you know maybe they own their own back 40 or 360 and they they want to do a little planning this spring Explain that philosophy and how it is relevant in the winter. Well, but it really facilitates midnight snacking, right? If we're not. <laughs> <laughs> but no, so if we take the kitchen next to the bedroom, you know, we assume that the bedroom is going to be that thermal cover, that nice winter cover where those birds are roosting in the evening. They're going in there for shelter. They're protected from the elements. That's their their safe, comfy, cozy spot. If we're going to talk, you know, bedroom terms. The kitchen is where they need to go to get food. Um, and so as habitat managers and habitat planners, a lot of times we'll, you know, develop plans where that food source, because if we're planning it or if someone's um, improving their habitat, they may want to put, you know, a food plot there or something. And so the idea is that they're in close proximity to each other so that those birds don't have to travel far and expose themselves to the elements, the cold, the wind, the rain the snow while they're traveling to get food. And then it's a short distance back. Um, a lot of times in winter, you know, we're not gonna, we're not gonna lose birds from starvation. We're losing birds from exposure to the elements. So if you have a food source for those birds, whether it's, you know, planted waste grain or artificial food source, if it's pulling those birds away from the bedroom, that's increasing their exposure to the elements and that's increasing their risk of death because they're going to be out of the elements. Mm -hmm. um, and so I always, you know, habitat planning, I always recommend, you know, have an idea of what your prevailing wind is out here in the Dakotas. Our prevailing wind comes from the Northwest. So when I'm designing habitat or if I've designed a habitat plan, I'll put the, the thermal cover, whether it's, you know, a cattail slough that's there naturally, or whether it's some shrubby cover that the landowner might want to plant, that's going to be on the in that northwest corner of the plot. It's gonna block most of the wind. It's gonna catch any of the snow if we have blizzards or most of them, you know, we can't plan for every scenario. And that's gonna keep the area where the food is. So if you're putting in a food plot, keeps that food plot, you know, more open than it would if it wasn't protected from the bedroom. Um, so that's kind of the bedroom and the kitchen next to each other. <laughs> yeah, I, I love that. I think it's so helpful to talk about all those components, you know, the, the, the distance that they have to travel from food to cover, the wind component, um, you know, just having it big enough to mitigate predation. 
Um, it's super helpful explanation that I think a lot of people can learn from as they, you know, as they, as we head into spring and think, okay, just come through a winter where they're driving around and like, it looks like a white moonscape out there. So how can I plan things for planting come March, April, May, and um, ha have this winter be a lesson that they learn from and do something differently on their property. Pheasants Forever's National Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic is coming to the Minneapolis Convention Center on February 17th through the 19th. Join us for puppy and dog training seminars, a youth village for kids, a public lands pavilion, pollinator and wildlife habitat, hunting gear, and more than 400 unique exhibitors. It's National Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic the weekend of February 17th. Presented by Pheasants Forever, Quail Forever, and Federal Ammunition. For more information, log on to pheasantfest.org. All right, let's jump to Minnesota, uh, Tanner Bruce. Um, you know, I you have the disadvantage of me living here in the same state, but but for clarity, though, you know, you live about three and a half hours different from me. You live in the heart of Minnesota's pheasant range, down in the southwest corner of the state. What's the winter like down in southern Minnesota, Tanner? Well, as I've been moving snow three out of the last five days and I'm sitting there thinking where am I going to put all of this crap the next two months uh, it's not yeah. great I'm not going to mm -hmm. sugarcoat anything we have a lot of snow in southwest Minnesota um, obviously within the state there's different ranges and snow tolls that we've had but speaking from Marshall where I live um, we've had a lot of snow and as you know I like to say that Marshall there's no birds down here so Whatever, don't worry about Marshall. Uh, but but that's not true. There are good bird numbers. Um, and it's not good, Bob. I mean, as far mm -hmm. as the weather goes. It's really disheartening for me personally because I, you know, came into the season and, you know, the, the forecasted numbers were okay in Minnesota, but the reality of what people found on the landscape was, I think, considerably better it was a, it wasn't a 07, 08 sort of hunting season, but it was probably the best hunting season in, I don't know, six or eight years. hundred percent. I would agree. And so we had really good numbers heading into what is turning it, turning into a somewhat devastating year. And it does underscore, you know, Rachel and I traded emails in front of this you know, it's like, okay, last time we had a really severe winter like this, North Dakota had 3 million acres of CRP on the landscape. There's, what, 1 million on the landscape now in North Dakota. Uh, Minnesota, I, I'm not sure what the CRP number is, considerably less than, than North Dakota. Did you know offhand how many acres are in Minnesota, Tanner, right I now? I know you'd put me on the spot, but... Um... It's probably right there in that million range. Yeah, I think it, it might be just under. So that's that's the key, though, right? I mean, it's it's how many acres of habitat on the ground to mitigate when winter comes, like you know, like you see on HBO, right? <laughs> yes, yeah. And habitat buffers, you know, the stuff we can't control, right? So mm -hmm. having more habitat on the ground and the quality of habitat is obviously going to prevail over mother nature. In in most instances, uh, obviously we can't control mother nature and this year mm -hmm. she's angry. So, um, habitat's key as we always yeah. talk about. So <clears throat> my experience, so I hunted Brown County, Cottonwood County, or Red, yeah, Cottonwood County towards the end of the season. You're over in Lyon County. My experience was, you know, food plots completely blowed in, um, grass stem, blue stem, all blown in. Cattails were blown around the edges. Like it was. <laughs> to get in was had, fun. To get oh, in them was fun. What, that's what I was laughing about. If if you were taking a video of me trying to get through the snow to get into cattails, it would have been on like America's Funniest Home Videos because I was. <laughs> face first and I'm just not a tall guy and it was just ridiculous. But 
at least, you know, it's, we do have some big cattail sloughs in Minnesota. And my experience is that's where, I mean, that, that's the magnet. They are, the pheasants on the landscape are absolutely stacked up like cordwood in the, the uh, cattail sloughs right now. Is that is that true of farther southwest Minnesota, Tanner? Absolutely. And I can't, from the last snowstorm that we had, I can't speak to it because pheasant season's over and I don't just go out for an enjoyment and mm-hmm. go walk around in cattail sloughs. Um, but the last, on the closing day, I was out on a WMA and found the exact same thing as you, Bob. I mean, to get in there, my dog was leaping and he was gaining a foot, you know, mm-hmm. maybe to try and get into the middle of the cattails. And his nose was bringing us to where the birds were. And that was in the middle mm-hmm. of the cattail slough. And we had to fight our way to get in there. And once we were in there, that's where they were. And the tracks, I mean, it was like pheasant highways in there. Um, once we were able to to get past the five foot drifts um, yeah. to get in the middle. So that is, that's where they're living. That's where they want to be. Um, once you got in there, you could get on, you know, deer trails or something else. A lot of pockets left in the, in the cattails. A lot of places for them to get down there and, and enjoy that thermal cover. So before... We're going to move to Matt next, but I have one one more question for you, Tanner. And Rachel started touching on this as well. And it, I often hear people talking about when they, when it's winter like this, they're driving around and they see birds, groups of birds, eating in picked cornfields that have been blown over. And I see those birds out there and the general populace says well you know i think they're doing okay because they're you know they're they're finding food you know i I see them out there they're surviving i always interpreted that as a a negative um as oh my goodness they're they're exposing themselves to predators they're you know they're they're not in secure cover like in the middle of summer you don't see them out in fields you know they're buried in, in or in october right they're buried in the cover and the fact that, you know, during the winter, here they are in groups out on edges of cornfields, I began, you know, it just, it, I always thought that that was an indication of vulnerability um, and stress. Um, but what, am I wrong? Is there wiggle room there based on the weather of the particular day? Like, how would you decipher that as a biologist? Well, I think you're both right if you look at both scenarios i mean the the first is a when the field is white you can see the birds a lot better they might be there but the field might be chisel plowed and you can't see a rooster real well in a chisel plowed field um and it gives you a lot of hope and inspiration right i mean you care about the birds you care about the population you had a great year great season you're excited about the years to come and you can go drive around and see hundreds of birds out in the field. So there's inspiration, there's hope, they're still alive. At the same time, while they're out in the field, as you mentioned, they're open to predation, they're stressed. Like if they're out in the field all day looking for food, they're stressed. And as we've talked about earlier, there's not a lot we can do about it right now, but we can start planning for the future and we can start making our habitat considerations. We can talk to biologists, we can get habitat recommendations based on our property. So you're both right because you do need that hope and inspiration, <laughs> right? To carry you through a long off season in which you're anticipating getting your bird dog out there. Um, but at the same time, if they're out there in the field all day, they are stressed. They're open to predation. Uh, we got a lot of avian predators out there that, they're opening themselves to vulnerability um, by being out there all the time. I will hundred percent take that as a victory being both right with Rachel. (laughs) (laughs) And by the way, you put me after Rachel and she stole my two punchlines and one was kitchen next to the bedroom. And you know, I really had it written down that I was going to talk about all the work that a rooster can do, but (laughs) darn it. I missed out on it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, well then uh, we'll we'll see if mr morlock from south dakota has anything left to say uh, be- before we go there um i want to give a shout out to onyx national sponsor of both pheasants forever and quail forever and 
a sponsor of On the Wing podcast. Uh, private and public land boundaries are just the beginning of what you can utilize Onyx for. Um, check it out at onyxhunt.com. Uh, you can you do a risk-free seven-day trial there. And if you use the code pheasants or quail, you get a 20% off uh, your, your membership at onyxhunt.com. So those codes are pheasants or quail. And I, I know it's many places not pheasant season anymore, but it's quail season. Well, it's pheasant season in South Dakota. I get that, Matt. It's pheasant season in Kansas, um, Nebraska. There's places. It's quail season a, uh, a bit longer in Point South, but you can use Onyx for, well, finding your way home for once if you get lost on a hike <laughs> um, or if you're uh, uh, planning to go turkey hunting this spring. So Onyx is a tremendous tool. They make a contribution for everybody that uses a, the code back to our habitat mission, leading to more habitat, more wild birds, and more public lands for all of us to hunt. So thank you very much to Onyx. All right, Matt, South Dakota, the undisputed, well, at least I'm going to say that, the undisputed pheasant capital of the country. Rachel can argue with it, but we'll say facts. It's the we'll first, second Dakota. It's fine. <laughs> what about it's Minnesota, only... Bob? It's our home state. Come on now. I can't. See, I'm in a tough spot. Being the coordinator for both states, I can't trash one or the other. I have to. Yeah, I, I, I took that out of your hands. You, you are represent South Dakota on this, on this one. Well, then the so, better Dakota. And, we're, and you, and you get, you get the final position. You get the cleanup position. You get the mic drop position. You get to run third. Um, but tell us, you know, I, I think about that same storm Rachel was talking about in November. I think that hit South Dakota as freezing rain and ice, yep. which uh, is not a good thing. Take us from there. Yeah. So this was, it seems like we've had a couple years of really favorable open winters. You know, two years ago, it seemed like those storm tracks went through Nebraska, Iowa, and kind of cut up. And then last year, it went through North Dakota, and we kind of stayed between them. And we were, you know, our populations were looking phenomenal this year. Um, but it seems like this is our turn through the middle. Um, we just came out of, you know, Mitchell got 23 inches a couple days ago mm. in one in one dump. Um, we're covered up in snow, like Tanner said. I mean, I want to come in here all positive and happy and, you know, the normal mat, positive and happy. Mm -hmm. um, but, as long uh, as you've had your coffee, right? As long as I've had my coffee in the morning. Um, but it's, it's getting tough out there. And everything, mm. the habitat, the birds, everybody's getting tired. Um, it's been since that storm, we went a good barometer of this is my kids were home from school for 23 days straight till yesterday. Um, there's a Christmas break in the middle, but on the front end and the back end, they weren't, weren't in school for 23 days. And that's, wow. that's not calendar days. That's, that's school days. Wow. Um, it's been rough. Everything's mm. socked in. Everything's socked in. Um, I, I use a barometer. You know, I, I'm lucky. I'm fortunate. I married a farm girl. Um, so I have a little farm to play with, um, and I've spent a lot of time out there and I, I, at this point, I'm thinking between 40 and 60% of my birds aren't there anymore. Mm. Um, and I'm hearing similar stories. Um, the good thing is we had tremendous populations coming into the fall, right? So we're going to carry over fine. I mean, we want I wanted to stockpile birds. We all want to stockpile birds. Um, this winter is taking in that excess off for us. So we'll bounce back. I don't want to think we're, we're done, but um, we've lost a significant number of birds. Um, we don't know. And something we haven't talked a lot about is livestock and how they play in some of the survivability. Mm. Um, for me, I got, a, I got a feedlot, a large feedlot, a half mile from my farm. I'm, I haven't been by there, but I'm speculating and I'm hoping a lot of those birds that I'm saying 60% moved over to that feedlot and they're feeding in there. Mm. Um, the pheasants in this country, at least when it's cattle country, they'll move and they'll go into those feedlot areas where it's open, it's warm. There we call them hot lunches. Um, there's there's food well, in there. It, it might have been recycled, but it's there, and they'll pick yeah. through and they'll use it. I'm glad you brought. <laughs> sorry, that I had to, I had to take it there. I'm sorry. There's my oh, toilet humor for the day. Yeah, hot lunch. Um, so. <laughs> I'm just gonna go for it. A hot lunch. There's my there's my mic about... my buzzword. 
Yeah. Um, so you're talking about a cow pie with yep. waste grain in it in a bird picking through the cow pie to find food, which yep. I hadn't thought about from a pheasant. For, you know, this really wonky for, for me, but back in high school, I wrote a, um, a term paper for biology class about wild turkeys in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. And one of their best food sources in the winter was picking through cow pies yep. to eat. So it's like, well, yeah, with turkeys are doing it. Why wouldn't they're, pheasants do that? Yep. They're gallinaceous birds. That's mm-hmm. so like chicken-like. And what do chickens do? What do, All those birds, they, they're picking on the ground. They're scratching. They're, mm-hmm. they're just digging on the ground. And they're, they're hitting what's available. Um, and they do, we see a lot in the Dakotas, especially, you know, South Dakota, I can speak to a lot, is when it's really rough, they'll move into those feedlots. Typically, they have belts around them. They're, there's a lot of thermal cover in there from the fact that there's a lot of shelter for the mm-hmm. livestock. For the livestock. Um, so they create almost little microclimates, and they'll go in and use those areas. Um, mm. But most of, our, most of our traditional, we'll get off of the feedlot and poop jokes. Um, most of our traditional <laughs> cover in this state, it's 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 snowed in. Um, like uh-huh. Rachel was saying, we have a lot of drifts that are in that 10, 15 foot level. Um, when I'm out moving snow in the tractor, I'm in a cab looking up at the top of the drift. And situations like that, it's it's not fun. It's not a good winter to talk about. So as I think about South Dakota, some of, you know, well, as you know, one of my favorite places in the world is the Fort Pier grasslands, where... You have sharp-tailed grouse, you have prairie chickens, and around the fringe where there's agriculture around the grasslands, you also have pheasants. And where my mind is headed, like, so, you know, we talk a lot about pheasant survivability in winter and what stresses them. What about our prairie grouse species, sharp-tails of prairie chickens? Um, the severity of this winter having a similar impact on those birds or, like, I just think about feet. I know that's an odd statement, but I think about sharp tails and their feather-covered feet. And they're, at least my perception is, they can almost, like, walk on the snow yep. in a way that pheasants just can't. It's, they're, you know, sharp tails have been here, right? since the dawn of time uh, pheasants not as much uh so is that an accurate assessment that they're able to prairie grouse are able to survive through some of this a little easier yeah they're i mean they've been they're the ogs on surviving winters um they've been around doing it forever um and and they're very resourceful birds um like so they they have the the feathered feet they can kind of stay on top of it more they're gonna they're gonna have some drops too they're not immune to it um, cause they still have to, you know, find enough food for energy and that kind of stuff, but they will, um, you know, they'll, they'll handle it a little bit better than pheasants even, um, and they'll come out of it. I mean, with, with, um, with grouse, the biggest thing is habitat reduction. Why we see those numbers go down their mm-hmm. nesting cover and things like that through plowing and, and things like that. So it's not so much the winters that impact their overall populations like the pheasants sometimes. Mm. It's... <laughs> Yeah, I didn't have to worry about you going last because in the last five minutes you dropped hot lunch and the OGs of surviving winters. So um, <laughs> that's what I'm here for, Bob. <laughs> well, well played. Um, it does. It, you know, the other thing I was thinking about. You know, we're so accustomed when you know you're hunting pheasants in the fall and you pop open that crop. Right? Early season, it's grasshoppers, right? But then after after the frost and the bugs die and you pop open the crop and it's corn, it's soybeans, it might be um, sorghum seeds. Um, I shot a couple of birds up near Hinkley, Minnesota this year, which is like on one walk, I was able to hunt uh, pheasants and rough grouse. So that tells you the two different kinds of habitat, but on one, like two two mile loop, I shot a rooster and two rough grouse. And when I popped open the crop, uh, the rough grouse, it's got what you sort of expect in there. Buds, catkins, seeds, you know, woody stuff. When you pop open a pheasant in that, what did you 
there's no ag there, right? So it's similar things, right? It's 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 seeds that you would never see in, uh, you know, an ag-oriented pheasant. And, and I think it goes to your Rachel's point very early on about very few pheasants die of starvation, right? They they can find things to eat, even if it isn't corn or soybeans or a crop that we commonly associate them with. If they're, if they're buried under a cattail slough, Matt, they can find things to eat, can't they? Oh, they'll find. Yep, they're they're resourceful in that aspect. And yeah, they're a lot of places, like you're saying, they're, they're in areas where there isn't a lot of egg and they're eating those smaller seeds, the wild sunflowers. And, hmm. and around our farm, I didn't have four food plots in this year. When I was po- popping crops, it was wild sunflowers. It was beggar's ticks. It was... Um, it was what beggars ticks it's so it's burdock i think is their name okay. for it that, that stuff <laughs> okay. that sticks on sticks on your pants and really okay. it's, two prong, it's a two-prong two flat seed yeah they the eat that oh they yeah yep. oh wow it was, it was okay. chalked full of that kind of stuff and then you have your koshas and all the they're gonna find seed hmm. um a lot of times that's a, birth. they are and that's a lot of times why we talk about pheasants being early successional species and liking the first few years of a planting. It's because all these weeds are out there on the site and it's not strictly grass. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're, they're out there eating while they're in their, their bedroom at that point because they're eating these weed seeds that are on the ground and stuff like that. So um, I've often joked and my, my FSA staff don't like it when I joke about it, but if I could keep it on first year weedy, my CRP fields, and keep it full of cockleburr and all that kind of garbage, I would do it mm. every day. Mm. You can eat crackers in Matt's bed anytime, huh? Exactly. <laughs> if you're a pheasant, you can. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Rachel, will you wave in your a notepad? Yeah, I just, you know, Matt's point about, you know, different variety. And we talked, you know, earlier we were talking about creating habitat. And, you know, it's too late to do anything now, but when you're thinking ahead, you know, if you are going to do woody cover, you know, think about those those native shrubs that are producing some sort of berry, you know, mm. whether it's a, a a dogwood or a viburnum or something, because pheasants are going to pheasants and grouse are going to feed on those. So if you're creating, you know, nice, good winter cover that can why not design it in a way that it can produce benefits across different seasons? So it's providing thermal cover. But then even when things get snowed in, if those pheasants can climb the snowdrift and pick berries off branches, they're going to do mm. that too. Mm. Uh, all right. So one more question, Matt, before we uh, round the corner and, and get everybody's closing thoughts. And that uh, this time of year on social media, you see a lot of people that want to do good things for pheasants. But I, I sometimes like, I don't know if that's really good. Um, you know, like I, I see somebody that, you know, drags, um, like a, a chisel plow through their field in the winter to open up the dirt so birds can get to it easier there, or they'll have corn cribs for birds to get to food. I, I know of a person that talked about, you know, going out into a cattail slough with a five gallon bucket as corn and just throwing it randomly, like, uh, you know, um, uh, just into the into the winter cover, hoping that the birds find it. Um, you know, are, are those things helpful to birds? Or is it, you know, it doesn't, doesn't hurt them, doesn't help them that much? Or is there, is there, you know, reasons not to do it? Yeah, sure. Give me the controversial stuff. I appreciate it. No, um, you know, it's it, it's one of those, there's varying degrees there. There's a lot of stuff going on with what you're saying. Mm-hmm. At best, a lot of them are neutral. Um, like going out and throwing corn out in a cattail slough, you're putting a lot of effort in it yourself, and you're probably not having an impact. Um, if it makes you feel good, hey, good on you. You got some exercise out of it. Um, when you're putting out feeders and you're congregating birds like that, mm-hmm. you're probably actually going backwards. Um, what it's doing is you're not only are you going to congregate your pheasants, but you're going to congregate your predators. Um, you're going to open them up. You know, we had, it's more of a waterfall issue than an upland bird issue, but you know, bird flu is always a concern, um, mm-hmm. especially right now with everything going on. You're congregating those birds into close quarters doing that. And if you start it, you can't stop it because those birds become dependent on it. 
And the worst thing you could do is start feeding them and then walk away from it. Because also mm. you brought birds in there, and then you took that food source away from them. Um, so, yeah, like I said, going out. on the opposite side of the house is their bedroom. Yeah. It's gone right. now. It's just yep. gone. It's just gone. <laughs> so, yeah, it's at best, you're probably having a, a neutral feel-good effect doing it. Like yeah. I said, throwing a bucket of corn out. It's not hurting anything, but it's really probably not doing much. What um, about the dragging the field with something that... So now, <laughs> now I have to fess up. <laughs> while I'm out, while I'm out blowing snow, I've been known, especially this year, to run the snow blower out in the field and, but do a big area of it. Mm-hmm. And my thought there is, if it gets warm, sun gets out, it's going to melt off that snow layer mm-hmm. and expose that ground again. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't ran a disc. You know, we're all no-till where we're at, um, but I have ran the I snow always, blower. I always recommend people. I mean, if they have to do something, you know, if they really want to do something to feel better, you know, do that versus. Yep you know, throwing artificial feed out there and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. It's less yep. expensive. It'll probably do more good. And if the food source isn't there, you're not going to congregate them. Like, right. you know, Matt was saying with artificial feeding that it's just going to attract predators. Yeah. Right. And you can do that. You can do that over a big enough area with a lot of effort or not a lot of effort set the birds aren't congregated in. Um, gotcha. So if you're going to, yeah, like Rachel said, that's probably out of all of them. Like I said, I'm guilty of doing it. I was just doing it last weekend just because <laughs> it felt good to go out there. And I'm going to throw this snow 100 feet off to the side, and I'm going to open this up. And if the sun happens to come out in the next three months, we'll, uh, we'll expose that ground and let it get the birds into it. Um, so that's so you, you've touched on this a couple of times, like the, the corn crib, the you know, the pile of corn as being a congregating predators. The way that's always been explained to me is like, what you're doing is creating a bait pile for predation. So you're putting corn out there, it's pulling in birds, and then you pick it. Raptors, coyotes, fox, whatever. It's like all of a sudden they have a focal point where they know what they want to eat is coming to that location. It's just the stair step. I mean, you're doing the pheasants are congregating there because you're putting a food source there easy for them to congregate on. Well, those birds are now a food source for the predators, mm-hmm. and you're putting them in a spot, and there's less energy, less to to get multiples, and you're just it stacks on top. If it's easy for one, it's gonna make it easier for the next one that you don't want, and that's what you're you're bringing them into that spot and causing. I think problems. one thing too that we didn't touch on because it's not really to do with pheasants, but if we have people are putting you know, corn out there in large amounts, you know, the negative impacts that can have on white-tailed deer. I mean, we have deaths every year of deer that just gorge themselves on corn and then they die. And I don't, I, I think a lot of people aren't aware of that situation that that happens. And so, yeah, yeah they'll, explain they'll like that. Cattle. They'll, uh, they'll get bloat. That yeah. rich corn diet will just, they'll just rupture their stomachs and, and cause bloating issues and things like that. Um, just like mm. livestock, they have to have a roughage in their diet, whether it's alfalfa, grass, hay, something like that. They have to have a roughage in that diet in order to to not get bloat. And that's if you just stick out a corn pile, you're gonna have issues with with the deer too. Wow. Yeah, and the that, winters that... are just as hard for them, and so they're grouping up. You know, and sometimes some of the same areas that pheasants are grouping up to to find cover. It's a really good point because I think you're right. Not a lot of people understand that that you know corn rich diet could lead to pretty instant death for whitetails i assume mule deer too yeah all right let's uh, go around the horn um you know don't mean this to be a downer episode on winter but (laughs) it's it's you know whether it's social media whether it's email uh we're getting these questions so we wanted to provide the best um feedback and then at the same time it underscores over and over the existence of or why, why we exist our habitat mission the need for habitat so let's go around the horn um closing thoughts from each of you we'll start with rachel oh good i don't have to get i don't have to worry those two are going to take it so um number one hot lunch number two put the put the kitchen next to the bedroom and number three 
Roosters can cover a lot of <laughs> ground. Wow. That, that was almost a mic drop. We'll see if Tanner can follow uh, it up. But no, I mean, in seriousness, though, I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't feel good about it if I didn't say habitat underscores mm-hmm. everything we're talking about today. So besides the three zingers that we got today, I'd say habitat's my uh, closing thought. Yeah. Go ahead, Tanner. You know, for me, I hope that, you know, through this conversation, through this winter, you know, it puts the emphasis on habitat and quality habitat. And I guess I would throw out there, we've got a ton of great partners out there providing public access and great habitat. We've got a lot of uh, private landowners and farmers that are doing a lot of great habitat work. But when you're thinking about your own personal 40 or 80 or whatever it is, don't constrict yourself to your property. Look at what is around you within a one, two mile radius. You know, if somebody else has winter habitat, you probably need to focus on nesting habitat. So I would take that into consideration and throw a plug in there for Onyx. It's a great app. Um, You can use that for your habitat planning purposes and you can draw lines and you can draw boxes and squares and, and draw different lines on the tool itself. So you can utilize that as a habitat planning tool as well. So with that, uh, Pheasants are awesome. Pheasants rock. They're persistent. Um, We'll have pheasants next year. Uh, Hang in there, and uh, we'll see you next fall in Blaze Orange. (laughs) Great, great closing points. Go ahead, Matt. I'll kind of build off what Tanner just wrapped up with. You know, it's it's easy to get down about this, but we've been here before. We're going to be here again. Um, The pheasants will come back. Um, We might lose a few this year. Um, we'll have good nesting conditions next year, hopefully. Uh, the birds will bounce back. Um, that's the beauty of pheasants is they're a prolific bird. The roosters can do a lot, as we learned today. Um, and, it's, and then, you know, the best thing people can do is, is start thinking about that next time because it's going to happen again. And, you know, reach out to your local farm bill biologist, your local precision egg and conservation specialist, your USDA service centers or your state agency staff. Um, and start looking at your, your properties, um, or if you don't own property, you know, start preaching to, to your neighbor friends and your friends that own, own land to look at stuff. And uh, you know, let's start prepping for the next one because it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And we know it's going to happen. And let's, let's start looking at our plans, our properties, and see how we can strategize and make it a little bit better, um, both for nesting and winter cover and everything. Um, this is a good reminder that we need to really be smart about what we do. Um, and really we can always learn and change stuff. And and there's a team of biologists around the country just waiting to go and meet and help with you. I mean, they would love nothing better than to come out to your coffee table and spend some time looking at your property and giving you some ideas and thoughts and help you find the cost share and the money to to go in there and implement it. That's a wonderful closing point. A point people to pheasantsforever.org or quailforever.org Go to the conservation tab and then the drop down about midway through the left navigation, find a biologist You type in your zip code and find the closest biologist to where you are. And they can help talk you through how to get that bedroom next to the kitchen and maybe even get a little uh, federal funding to help pay to make that happen. Uh, Tanner Bruce, Rachel Bush, Matt Morlock. First of all, thank you very much for sharing your time and your expertise. All three of these folks will be at National Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic a month from now. Um, They'll largely either be around the habitat stage or the landowner habitat help stage. I think Rachel's in charge of the habitat stage and Tanner's in charge of the habitat help room. And Matt's kind of split duties between both do. of them. But if you if you go to the habitat area, uh, you can connect with Rachel, Tanner, or Matt. They'll be in that general area all three days of the show. Um, thank thank you all very much for for joining. It's been really interesting, um, educational, and and very fun to hashtag hot lunch. so uh folks thank you for listening if you're not yet a member please sign up 
pheasantsforever.org, quailforever.org. We got killer membership offers happening right now on the website. And I'll invite you to Pheasant Fest too, February 17th through the 19th, Minneapolis Convention Center. Whole thing kicks off with my favorite hour of the year. The Bird Dog Parade at 11 o'clock on Friday. And uh, come join me. It will be an absolute blast to kick off three days of uh, the biggest event in the Uplands every year. So thanks for listening and see you at Pheasant Fest. I'm Bob St. Pierre reminding you to always follow the dog. Something good will rise. Thanks, folks.